This morning we're going to be back in Ephesians chapter 5. In verses 19 through 21. We're in that section of Ephesians that is filled with commands and expectations of God and Christ towards us as believers. It started back in the first chapter, excuse me, back in the first verse of the fourth chapter, when we're told there to walk worthy of the calling with which we were called. And down through the 16th verse of that same chapter, that expectation is clearly defined. If you ask the question, what does it look like, what does it mean for me to walk worthy of the calling with which I've been called, then those verses answer that question for you. Moving on in the fourth chapter, we saw that we, were, we are to no longer walk as the rest of the Gentiles walk in the futility of their mind, with, an un, with a darkened understanding. But rather, in chapter 5, we're told that we are to walk in love toward one another, and then to walk circumspectly, and then to walk in wisdom. And this morning, we're down into the 19th verse of Ephesians chapter 5, and I want to back up and just read the paragraph as it stands in verses 15 through 21, if you'll listen as I read. Paul says, See then that you walk circumspectly, not as fools, but as wise, redeeming the time because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be unwise, but understand what the will of the Lord is. And do not be drunk with wine in which is dissipation, but be filled with the Spirit, speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody in your heart to the Lord giving thanks always for all things to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another in the fear of God. Let's pray. Father, we come to your word and we ask that you would open it to our understanding, that you would glorify the Lord Jesus Christ through the preaching of it. We ask it in his name. Amen. So last week we dealt with verse 18. Verse 18 tells us, Again, that we are not to be drunk with wine, in which is dissipation, but to be filled with the Spirit. I want to, to stop here and pause for just a moment and remind you of something. In case you feel like chapters 4, 5, and 6 are building and building and building and laying a weight of the expectation upon you, I want to remind you of something. And I'm going to use the words of John Piper to do this. I read something by him this week that I thought was particularly helpful. Listen to what he says. God has not contaminated the gospel of grace by the abundance of imperatives in the New Testament. Now he's going to go on, and I'm going to read what he finishes, but just let that sit for a moment. God has not contaminated the gospel of grace by interjecting in the New Testament all of these expectations, and really, they're more than that. These are commands that we are to obey, to strive to obey unto the glory of God. And in so doing, we are walking, notice that word has come up over and over and over again, it's the way that you live, the total picture of your life. These imperative commands 
instruct us and chisel us into a life or a lifestyle that brings honor and glory to God. So back to what he says, what Piper says. The gospel of grace has not been contaminated with the abundance of imperatives in the New Testament. We live under the new covenant. But the mark of that covenant is not an an absence of commands, but the blood-bought power to obey them. Now, thinking along that lines, let me read to you the words from Ezekiel chapter 36. Those of you who have studied the difference in the old and the new covenant, you understand that there is a, a stark and great difference And this is Ezekiel, the prophet, prophesying and speaking of the new covenant that was to come to be fully, not just inaugurated, but brought into existence by the coming of Christ and how he works that out in the life of his people. Remember what he says. Remember how this is also applied in the book of Hebrews in the New Testament. But this is Ezekiel 36. God says, I will give you a new heart. And put a new spirit within you. I will take the heart of stone out of your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes so that you will keep my judgments and do them. Did you hear the last part of that? He says again, I will cause you to walk in my statutes. There's the familiar word in Ephesians again, right? Walk. I like the way the ESV translates the latter part of that verse, Ezekiel 36, 27. And you will be careful to obey my rules. That encapsulates the Christian life. Where do you find the strength to walk circumspectly? Where do you find the strength to walk in wisdom? or to walk in love, or to walk as children of light. You don't find it in yourself. If you look down into the depth of your heart and your soul to find the strength to be obedient to these commands, you're going to come up empty every single time. You will faint in the task of walking as children of light if you seek to do so in and of your own strength. That's why this verse from Ezekiel and others like it are so important as we understand this new covenant. Not only does God give the new heart and the new desire, but the new ability to do these things. Now that's not saying that we're merely robotic and not making you know, real decisions and choices in life. We do have a responsibility before God on our part, but thankfully that responsibility is informed or empowered by the Spirit of Christ within us. So before we get involved in verses 19 through 21, I also want to relate this to you by way of introduction. These imperative commands in the book of Ephesians, and remember way back when we started in in Ephesians, We made the point that in the last three chapters of Ephesians, there are more commands, practical commands, calling for our obedience than any other place in the New Testament. They come one right after another in quick succession to one another. And what these things do for us, in essence, is hedge up the narrow way that we are to walk on. 
We know that we get entrance, gain entrance to the narrow way through coming through the gate of Jesus Christ, that narrow gate, which he declares of himself that he alone is the way, the truth, and the life. He alone is the door of the sheep. He alone is that entrance into this narrow path. But all of these imperatives and expectations and commands that we are given under the gospel of grace then give definition to that path. They are the walls of that path. They are the boundaries of that path. Our responsibility as Christians is to stay as best we can, not just on the fringe of the path, but in the middle of the path. What's the danger of the Christian life? One of them, anyway. If the path has two, two sides, let's say there's a ditch on each side, what's the danger? To fall into one or the other of those, right? You see this in your own life. I, I can almost guarantee that if you've been a Christian for any length of time, you know exactly what I'm talking about. You're in the ditch of legalism, right? You begin to understand the gospel of grace and how it's all of Christ. And then what happens? You overcorrect and you come over and you find yourself into the ditch of antinomianism where there is no law. There are no expectations. It's all love. It's all grace. And then perhaps you've cycled through this several times and you overcorrect again and you're back into this, this ditch of legalistic law-keeping and all about the external. If I dress this way, if I look this way, if I say these words, if I do these things, and if I don't do these other things, then I'm in a, in a good place. And you'll proceed down that path for a while and there will be some bump that you go over and you will overcorrect again and you'll get back into this ditch over here that says, well, on the other hand, I'm, I'm seeing in the New Testament that there are no expectations, that the, that the law of God in my life as a Christian may not be exactly what I have considered it to be over here. And you see how that plays back and forth. You can make application of that to many different things in your life, specific applications of that. In my own family, there have been overcorrections and undercorrections and all of these types of things that we have gone from one side to the other, but these imperative commands for us define the narrow path, and our responsibility is to discern. Remember, that's what we looked at a few weeks ago, that we are to discern the will of Christ. Verse 17 Therefore, do not be unwise, but understand what the will of the Lord is. Discernment, a seeming lost art, ability, concern in the Christian life. We need to recover it unto the glory of God and for the cause of Christ in our life. And that really, that really governs, understanding what the will of the Lord is really governs this paragraph that we've been working in for the last several weeks. This morning we get into verse 19. You'll notice it's right dead in the middle of the thought that began at the end of verse 18. So let's back up at least to there. Be filled with the Spirit, speaking to one another in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, singing 
and making melody in your heart to the Lord, giving thanks always for all things to God the Father, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another in the fear of God. So this morning we're going to consider what is the Spirit-filled life. And we're going to use these verses and stay within the bounds of this paragraph. The command, be filled with the Spirit, stands in stark opposition to not being drunk with wine in which is dissipation. We looked at all that last week. If you missed that and wondered what was said there, go back and listen to it. I don't want to repeat all of that again, but I do want to review at least the high points from the second part of last week to be filled with the Spirit. Because moving forward, it's important that we understand that, first of all, this is a command or an expectation given to Christians. This is not a call to salvation. This is a call to sanctification. This is a call to allow the Spirit of Christ to so work in you that it produces these things. And in context, the things that are being produced is a life of joy, a life of thankfulness, and a life of mutual submission. So this is a command given to those that are already in Christ. Secondly, what's in view here is the evidence of filling and not the experience of filling. The evidence is speaking to one another in psalms, hymns, spiritual songs, thankfulness, submission, all of those things in their turn. What Paul doesn't relate here or anywhere in the scriptures is to seek after that, quote, experience of spirit filling that so many, in our, so many in our day speak of, that second experience, the higher life. So that brings me to the third thing I want to remind you of. The Spirit-filled life is the normal Christian life. It should be the norm for every child of God to be filled with the Spirit. It's not just for those who are a little further along. It's not just for those that are a cut above. Every believer, regardless of how long you've been a Christian, regardless of your physical age or your understanding of the Scriptures, this is a command for you to obey, for you to heed. And since it is the lifestyle of the, quote, normal Christian, then it is a lifestyle to be cultivated and pursued through different means. All, the, all of the means are given to us in the Scriptures. And I want to, to revisit something I said last week. Perhaps I didn't say it clearly. Notice the way Paul says this. He says, be filled. Now, I don't know if there's an obvious question that comes to your mind or not. There is one that comes to mind. How? How am I filled with the Spirit? Isn't it true that when I was converted, justified in the sight of God, the Spirit of Christ was given to me and sealed me, guaranteeing my hope of redemption? We've studied that in this same epistle. Isn't that true? All of those things are true. Thankfully, all of those things are true. And it's not like the Spirit forsakes us and returns and, and goes and comes back. 
the command to be filled with the Spirit. Notice, notice all of these things about it. It's in the present tense, which means it's an ongoing thing. You are to be filled with the Spirit today. You are to be filled with the Spirit tomorrow. The next day, from now on, we are to be filled with the Spirit. Not only is it present tense and ongoing, it is imperative. What does that mean? It's a command. And then thirdly, and this is the point that I want to to make a little more clearly than I did last week, it's passive. We are being filled. We are not the ones doing the filling. To look at this word used in a different context to help us try to grasp it and understand it, I want to read to you Luke chapter 2, verse 40. You'll remember these words concerning Christ as a child. Luke chapter 2, verse 40 says, And the child grew and became strong in spirit, filled with wisdom, and the grace of God was upon him. So there it says the same word is used. It's the same passive voice Christ is filled with wisdom. And I understand we have this disconnect when we think about Christ because He is you know, both fully God and fully man. And we tend to go heavy on the fully God aspect and, and not quite so much on the fully man, but He is both. He Himself was filled with wisdom. So back to our question, what does it mean or how, more specifically, am I to be filled with wisdom? I mean, how am I to be filled with the Spirit? I understand that's the calling and the expectation. If I were to implement things in my life that would result with me being filled with the Spirit, what would they be? And we noted last week that this specific text here doesn't speak to that. It just gives us the command, be filled. But do you remember what we did last week? We went to the book of Colossians the parallel passage with Colossians, because in the 16th verse of chapter 3 in Colossians, we read the same thing, speaking to one another with psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, singing and making melody in your heart to the Lord. Almost verbatim. What immediately preceded that, though, in the book of Colossians? Do you remember? Would you look at it with me again? Colossians chapter 3. Because this goes a long way in answering the question, How? What things do I do in life to ensure obedience to the command of being filled with the Spirit? Am I just to sit around and wait for the Holy Spirit of God to zap me and come upon me and slay me in the Spirit? All of these oddities that we see and hear in the Christian world around us today, is that what I'm supposed to do? Am I supposed to go sit out under a tree and just pray and ask the Lord to you know, so powerfully move upon me that the result is my being filled with the Spirit. Well, not necessarily. Look at what Paul says in Colossians chapter 3 and verse 15. Excuse me, verse 16. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly in all wisdom. And then we read, teaching and admonishing one another in Psalms, hymns, spiritual songs, singing with grace in your hearts 
to the Lord. So the parallel comes in this way. And I think we're right in seeing it this way. The same fruit is produced by the influence of the word of Christ in Colossians chapter 3 that is, influ- that is produced by the influence of the spirit of Christ in Ephesians chapter 5. So how does this go? How does this help us answer the question how? Well, the word of Christ, the word of God is central in your and my being filled with the Spirit. Let me just say it plainly. You will not be filled with the Spirit of God unless you are through disciplined use of means filling your heart and your mind with the Word of Christ. These two things come together. Think of this as being two sides of the same coin. One side is to be filled with the Spirit. The other side is to be filled with the Word. Filled with the Spirit of Christ, filled with the Word of Christ. If you want a practical how-to, and I understand we're all built that way. We all want the practical how-to. Step one, do this. Step two, do that. Step three, if you want the practical how-to to be filled with the Spirit, then you will employ the means of the Word through reading and study and, and listening to sermons and Bible studies, and you'll do everything that you can to get the Word of God into your heart, into your ear, your spiritual ear. And then what we'll find at the end of that is that we are being filled with the Spirit. The Spirit is going to use the Word to pour Himself into your life. And the word filled there, you can think of back in Jesus' first miracle. We referenced it last week. But to look at it from a different aspect, you remember He said, fill the water pots. And what did they do? They filled them to the full. That's what the Spirit of Christ is going to do with us as believers is fill us to the brim and then produce in us the fruit of the Spirit. Now, we can go to Galatians 5.22 and see what the fruit of the Spirit are, but though the words aren't the same, what we read here in verses 19 through 21 are just as much to be considered as a fruit of the Spirit. This is a fruit of being filled with the Spirit. And notice it's set in stark contrast, direct opposition to physical drunkenness. What did that lead to? Dissipation. Riot. Destruction. Being filled with the Spirit leads to the direct opposite of these things. Let's look at what they are. All of the things that are mentioned here in verses 19 through 21, all of these participles ending with the I-N-G, right? Look at them with me. Speaking, singing, making melody, giving thanks, submitting, all of these depend on this being filled 
with the Spirit, which tells us that unless we are filled with the Spirit, then these things are not going to be a part of our lives to the degree that they should be. So let's look at the first. And this I want to just make a simple point. The Spirit-filled life is first a life of joy. And it is expressed in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. But I want to back up to the first part of verse 19 and, and, and look at this with me. Perhaps you've seen this before and recognized it before and, and seen the significance of it before, but the Lord showed this to me just in afresh and anew this week. This is on the fir- first, it's on the horizontal plane. Things that we speak to one another. There is that vertical aspect, but it comes second. The vertical aspect is, is making melody in your hearts to the Lord. But first, we speak to one another. We often, perhaps I shouldn't include you in what I do, I often immediately make application of these verses to what we are doing now, the corporate worship setting. But if you were to ask me what in this paragraph dictates that, that this be first and foremost applied to the setting of corporate worship, I'd be at a loss to prove that to you. I think that's an implication. I think it's certainly an application. But the first aspect of this life, spirit-filled life, as being a life of joy are the words, the attitudes with which we relate to one another. Speaking to one another in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. Now, does this mean when we go over to the fellowship hall to have a fellowship meal that we need to just, instead of, you know, do we need to sing to each other instead of having conversation? That's not necessarily what it means. It means to live a life that seeks to build up and bless your fellow believers. Those are Ian Hamilton's words. To live a life that is seeking to build up and bless fellow believers, words that are based upon and flowing out of your heart and expressing themselves in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, singing and making melody in your heart to the Lord. And again... I always appeal to Curtis Vaughn. He says the reference is to both social conversation and meetings of divine worship or corporate worship. But it's interesting, though, the order, right, that Paul doesn't begin with that vertical relationship of of being filled with the Spirit, how it overflows into expressions of worship to God, but that it overflows into speaking to one another. Have you ever considered that this is an evidence of the filling of the Spirit in your life? Is fellowship to this degree? We miss the boat so much on what true Christian fellowship is. It's more than just being in the same room. It's more than just sitting around a table of food. 
It's encouraging one another, intentionally encouraging one another in the things of the Lord based upon the common ground that we have of being in Christ. That's what fellowship is. Let me go further and say this. That's what you need. That's what I need. I don't need the food, right? You can look and tell. I don't need that. I need my brothers and sisters, just like you need your brothers and sisters, to encourage your heart. Because everything that confronts you in the world outside of the meeting of the saints in the confines of your home, when you go out into the world, everything there is seeking to steal and rob you of your joy in Christ by heaping upon you expectations and responsibilities, dealing with people who are not brothers and sisters in Christ. All of these things begin to weigh on you. And then how refreshing is it then coming out of that into the confines of the body of Christ and finding someone who is so invested in your life and who loves you so much that they will speak to you out of the overflow of their heart that has been filled by the Spirit of God throughout their cultivating that throughout the week. You're not going to find that anywhere else. You're just not. That's the beauty of the body of Christ. He does break this down into three aspects. Psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. And I certainly think the implication here is we teach and instruct one another. That was the parallel back in Colossians that we read, that we are teaching and admonishing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. But let me caution you to not try to make a stark distinction in the words. Obviously they are different words, but I think here we are to, to be encouraged and under the responsibility of the whole rather than the individual parts. So what is meant by Paul using these words both in Ephesians and Colossians, psalms, hymn, hymns, and spiritual songs. How are they to be a part of our conversation one to another? And how are they to be used to teach and admonish us in a setting of corporate worship? Well, let's look at them in turn. First with psalms. We immediately run to the book of psalms, right? Can I show you something, though, that is interesting, 1 Corinthians chapter 14. 1 Corinthians in large part is a corrective epistle, much like many of Paul's epistles. He is correcting either false doctrine or wrong practice. And in the 14th chapter of 1 Corinthians, he is giving instruction on prophecy and tongues and the interpretation of tongues. And you've read the chapter, but notice verse 26. How is it then, brethren, when you come together, each of you has a psalm, has a teaching, has a tongue, has a revelation, has an interpretation. And then he goes on to say, let all things be done for edification. The reason we turn here is to look in verse 26. Paul uses this word psalm. It's the same word, different context. And while it very often and rightly is interpreted as, you know, the, the book of Psalms, I think it comes from that, comes on from that, and is used 
in the way that Paul uses it in 1 Corinthians 14 to speak of a compilation or even a recitation of something that is based upon the Psalms but not necessarily a direct quotation of the Psalm itself. If that makes sense. I think that's what he's saying there in Psalm 1426. It's not as if they each brought you know, a copy or a, or a memorized part of a literal psalm that they're wanting to expound or to exposit. But it is something in his correcting of that that they have seen to be on par or to bear equal weight as the Old Testament psalms. We're going to, I'm going to come back and make application to all three of these in just a moment. But secondly, hymns. What are hymns? We have a hymn book. We sing out of it. It is a compilation of poems set to music written by men and women that are not inspired. Not inspired the way Scripture is inspired. Interestingly, do you realize every one of those hymns in this book, regardless of how old they are, were once new? Were once brand new to the church? Amazing Grace, John Newton, that was once introduced to a congregation. Here is a brand new hymn by John Newton. Martin Luther's great hymn, A Mighty Fortress is Our God. You realize, don't you, at one specific point in church history that this hymn was presented to the church. Here is a brand new hymn by Martin Luther. And so don't fall into the, the line of thinking that something has to be old for it to be biblical. That anything new is not good. Now I'll grant you this, much of what is new is no good for corporate worship. That's, we can all agree on that. But if you are under the mindset that just because it's new, then it mustn't be any good then I, I think there is some correction of course that is needed in our thinking to understand that. There are examples of hymns given, I believe, in the New Testament. Most recently, verse 14 of chapter 5, probably most think was a portion of an early Christian hymn, even though it is found to be based on words from Isaiah. Not a direct quotation of those words, and you'll find things like this scattered throughout the New Testament. We won't take time to read them, but if you were to look in Philippians chapter 2, Colossians chapter 1, 1 Timothy chapter 3, your Bible usually sets these off in a different type. And many believe that these were portions or part of early Christian hymns that the church sang. And Paul was using them, or who all of these references I gave you are Paul. Paul was using them in some way to teach doctrine. To teach and admonish one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. Now, these things obviously can and should be great instruments of doctrinal teaching. And as we sing them and as we speak of them, we're doing exactly what Paul said there in Colossians 3. We're teaching and admonishing one another. The last group that he brings up is the spiritual songs. And I'm going to admit, I can't tell you exactly what Paul has in mind. 
I suppose that he means that these are compositions that are not under the direct inspiration of the Spirit, but under the, quote, illumination of the Spirit. These would be spiritual songs. When you take all three of them together, according to this, they are to be the basis of our conversation and the expression of our worship. Now, S.M. Ball is not a name, not a household name. Not many of you will recognize his name. But I love what he's written on this. He said, the words of Scripture, especially the Psalms, are certainly to be used directly and to guide modern song, but not exclusively so any more than any other forms of prayer and praise. And if you were to read his, that in the larger context of which he, which he writes, he makes appeal to Ephesians chapter 6, verse 18. If you'll just look over on the page there, you'll, you'll see with me that Paul there, as he's bringing this epistle to a close, says, praying always with all prayer and supplication in the Spirit. And what this author does that I just quoted with you makes the correlation that the singing is to be done in the Spirit, the praying is to be done in the Spirit. Therefore, should we only pray direct words of Scripture? Jesus gave us a model prayer to teach us how we ought to pray. And my understanding is that it is a model prayer, not something that we should, should, should directly recite and quote, though that's not in and of itself wrong. But if that's the only thing that we were to ever pray, is a direct recitation of what Jesus said, pray in this way, then how could we ever fulfill this command in Ephesians 6, 18? And if this is to be done in the Spirit in that way, then to be hermeneutically correct, we have to apply the same principle to both. You're not hearing me say that it's wrong to sing words of Scripture directly. No, that's a glorious and beautiful thing that, quite honestly, we need to be more disciplined in. But what you are hearing me say is that we don't have to limit ourselves to the direct words of Scripture in what we sing. So long as it is doctrinally sound, so long as it glorifies Christ, and so long as it puts man in his proper place. We don't want to sing songs that glorify ourselves. We don't want to sing songs that exalt ourselves in the presence of God. We want to sing songs that exalt Christ, that honor God, that teach and admonish one another as we are doing so. So all of this comes under that horizontal aspect of what it means to be filled with the Spirit. We are going to speak to one another. Secondly, as we consider the vertical aspect, we are going to, the second part of this, make melody in our hearts to the Lord. I like the translation, instead of in your heart, with your heart. This is not a call to silent expression like you would think of in your heart making melody. Keeping it to yourself. But with your heart, sing. Singing is something that is done uniquely with the voice that God has given.
We have been given a voice and a tongue to bless our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Listen to these words. In congregational singing, the outward expression of praise must not outrun the spirit of inward devotion. Let me read that again. In congregational singing, the outward expression of praise must not outrun the spirit of inward devotion. What does he mean by that? This is Jeffrey B. Wilson. What does he mean? It means that you and I are not to be so taken with the atmosphere of worship. We're not to be so taken with things like the lighting or lack of lighting, instrumentality. We're to be so taken in worship by the attitude of our inward devotion. All of these other things, instruments, atmosphere, whatever, they are all just helps. And if you're depending on all of these outward things to, quote, get you in the mood, then you have come to worship ill-prepared. If your heart is not burning from being in close devotion with Jesus Christ through the week, through His Word, if you are hoping and praying that I or Seth or someone is going to stir your heart to worship, you're sadly mistaken. I have a hard time stirring my own heart to worship, much less yours. So don't depend on the externals. And to go back to this quote, don't, don't let the external or the outward run ahead of your heart. Because if that's what happens, if the external things so enrapture you and you get caught up in them and there is no heartfelt worship of Christ, you've wasted your time. It's a total waste of time. And again, let me bring Curtis Vaughn to the table. He says, unless our praise springs from the heart, it is not acceptable to the Lord. And I would add to his words, however beautifully done it may be, however poorly done it may be, if it is not springing from the heart, then it is not acceptable to the Lord. Go read the minor prophets, Amos and Malachi, to see what the Lord thinks of worship that is vain because it is not springing from a heart that is intent on worshiping Him. It's caught up with externals. It's caught up in going through the motions. And God says, take that noise out of my sight, out of my presence. I will not smell in your sacred assemblies. Remember, they are doing the very things that they are told to do, but they've perverted it. In Malachi, were they bringing sacrifices to the worship of God? Yes, but what were they bringing? The poor, the lame, the sick, that which was worth nothing to them. They were bringing in supposed sacrifice to God. God says, away with it. Go read those two minor prophets, Amos in Malachi, God says, take it away from me. It's vain. Your heart is far removed. Those are the words from Isaiah that Jesus brings in to rebuke the Pharisees. In vain do they worship me. Why? Because their, their mouth speaks great swelling words, but their heart is so far removed. It's a royal waste of time.
We are to sing and make melody in our hearts to the Lord. And that is to be seen as an overflow, a result or a consequence of having been filled with the Spirit. Just one more thing before we move on. If we aren't preparing ourselves for worship, then we're not going to get a lot from it. And I realize the point of worship is not first what we get first, it's our expression to God, but secondary, there is to be great edification that is found in the worship of God. And if your heart is not prepared, if you come into the worship of God cold, you know what you're going to do? I can tell you what you're going to do. You're going to watch your watch and think, when is he going to be done? You're going to leave having said, I've, I've done that. Conscience clear, check. Gone to church. That's what it's like to come into the worship of God with a cold heart. That's what it's like to come into the worship of God having not been filled with the Spirit through the week. That's what it's like to come into the worship of God and not be, and to be ready to quickly leave. I heard this said years ago. I think I've got it right in my mind. Please understand the way that I say this. Church for many people is the only place they prepare themselves, get ready to go, that they can't wait to leave. How quickly do we want to get in and get out and let all of this other stuff go undone? Well, let's move on. A spirit-filled life is a life of joy, but secondly, it's a life of thankfulness. You see it in verse 20. Giving thanks always for all things to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Let me just say four things about this quickly. Notice the giving of thanks is to be constant. Continual. Giving thanks always. For all things. Unto God the Father, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. The point that I want to make here, outside of those four things, that it, is, that it is to be constant for all things unto God, in the name of Christ, the point to be made, I love these words, thankfulness, always for all things, is a conviction of a person who is fully persuaded that God is absolutely good. That whatever he allows to come into your life, whether it brings tears, heartache, or joy, that whatever he brings into your life springs from his absolute goodness. And the only way that we can continually, always, for all things, unto God, in Christ, be thankful and live this expression of spirit filling in our life is to be absolutely persuaded that he is good. And that he is working all things for our good. If you doubt that, either one of those, if you doubt his goodness to any degree and his ability to use everything in your life for your good, then you're not going to be thankful for all things at all times. You're going to question things. You're going to murmur and complain and grumble against things. It's not going to be the continual overflow of your heart. We can say the opposite of this. 
is that unthankfulness denies the goodness of God. Thirdly, not only is the Spirit-filled life a life of joy, a life of thankfulness, but it is a life of mutual submission. You see it in verse 21, submitting to one another in the fear of God. Mutual submission. Believers in the fear of God submitting one to another. No one thinking of themselves more highly than they ought to think. No one filled with pride and arrogance, but giving preference to their brother or sister. This is what's in view. And it is the very opposite of rudeness, haughtiness, selfish preference on your own Selfish insistence on your own preferences or your own rights, but deference. Treating your brethren as you would want them to treat you. What's represented in this room this morning at least are many individual preferences. Ways that you think things ought to be done, ways that I think things ought to be done. What do we do when those things, when we're different on those? And I'm talking about on the small things. What are we to do? We're to defer to one another. Not thinking of ourselves too highly. Not thinking of our own opinion too highly. And I'm not talking about those high points of doctrine that condemn people to hell. We are to expose those things. We've seen that already in Ephesians. I'm talking about just mere preference. This is what I think what Paul has in mind here. Submitting to one another in the fear of God. And then you'll notice, Lord willing, next week, Paul moves right into giving specific applications of submission to this general rule that he has stated in verse 21. So in conclusion, if you understand the command to be filled with the Spirit, what are you doing to ensure obedience to it? Again, we appeal to Colossians 3. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly with all wisdom. By, every, by any and every means available to you, the word of God should be dominating your life. You've got to get it into your heart. The Spirit uses your disciplined use of means to fill you. So we can't appeal to the passivity of this text, right? Just back up and, and wait to be filled? No, we, we open our Bible. We pray for help of the Spirit. We discipline ourselves into the purpose of godliness. And then we reap the benefit, the horizontal, one another, the vertical, worship to God, 
having a life of thanksgiving, a life of joy, and a life of forbearing with one another, submitting to one another in the fear of God. These are only things that you can do with the help of Christ. You must be found in Him. If you have any hope of fulfilling obedience to these things, let's pray. Father, we thank you for these words of expectation. Lord, we desire filling with the Spirit. But help us not only to to say it, help us to pursue it. Help us to give ourselves unto the discipline that is required to let the word of Christ dwell in us richly. Lord, we desire to be useful in one another's lives, to speak to one another with words that are, are based or flowing out of scriptural truth. We desire to worship you in truth and in spirit. Lord, we desire to be that people that the scriptures speak of as being thankful always in all things because we are convinced, fully persuaded that you, our Father in heaven, are absolutely good. Now, Lord, we desire to forbear, to submit one to another in your fear. Lord, help us in these things. We are dependent upon upon your work in our heart, in our life. We pray and ask all of these things in Christ's name. Amen.